I'm TL, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week at Mass, we say those words, I believe, but our belief has implications on the way we live our life the rest of the week. We explore those implications together right here on Outside the Walls. Each week in the Creed, we say, I believe in the communion of saints. We've talked about that here on the show many times over, generally around the first week of November as we come to... uh, to really wrestle with what it means for those who have gone before us to still be in union with us in a very real and profound way, if not a physical way. We've had conversations with with individuals about their devotion to the saints, how their lives have been strengthened through that communion. We've had a theologian come on and talk a little bit about understanding what that means to the church uh, a little bit more fully, both how it's understood and how it's practiced. We've talked about relics. We've gone all kinds of different directions as we've looked at the communion of saints. And so uh, we're not going to rehash any of that today. But today I want to focus on uh, a canonized saint, a saint who will be canonized, rather, on October 13th. John Henry Cardinal Newman is going to be uh, canonized and brought into the church calendar. Now, we've said this before, but just as a reminder, uh, a canonized saint is a very particular uh, role for a saint. But everyone who is uh, made it to heaven is a saint. That's why we have All Saints Day. For those people who we have prayed for the repose of their soul, we know them and we love them and we know that they loved God. Uh, and we can hope for, for certain and we can ask for the intercessions of these loved ones. Uh, they are no less saints than than the big saints that we all know about, St. Francis and St. Benedict and St. Dominic and St. Ignatius of Loyola. Um, But the canonized saint has a very particular role for us in that they are people who lived lives of heroic virtue that are worthy of being uh, really emulated, that their their life stands as a particular example to us uh, of how to live in holiness. And they do that in different ways. For instance, St. Therese shows us that uh, that you can be small in, in spirit. You know, she talked about, I, I, I don't feel like I can really take the, the grand staircases or ladders into heaven. I need a little way. I need a little elevator to take me there. And so she shows us the profound trust in God that, that we all can have, that we can all say, you know what, I might never be uh, really some amazing writer who preaches to thousands and, and, uh, converts many, but, but God still has a little way to elevate my soul to heaven, to put me in his presence and to love him here and in life eternal. And then you have the great doctors of the church who teach us some beautiful piece and picture of who God is and how he relates to us. So each of these canonized saints in that long, long list of them, they have something to offer to us to help us to understand who God is, how he relates to us, and how we can love him more. We do something in our house with, uh, with the saints that um, we do a few things. One, one is that we listen to the stories of the saints. There are some great audio books uh, on LibriVox.com. It's all public domain. Some of the recordings are better than others, uh, and that's just the way it is. That's what you get for a free audiobook. 
Uh, but we've listened to the lives of the saints from, from Francis Alice Forbes uh, and a number of other authors who just unpack in a beautiful way the lives of these saints. And so we get to know who they are and we get to see how they reacted in situations similar to what we have. And the kids just love it. The other thing we do each night, we have a litany that we pray. And so we, we invoke the names of the saints who are dear to us specifically as a family. And the kids have figured out <laughs> that if they, um, if they keep doing uh, and bringing up saints, then they don't have to go to bed quite as early, right? As long as they keep the litany going, we're just going to kind of let it go because we're invoking the intercession of the saints, and that's important. So they're, they're starting to put out some really obscure saints, and they've got all of their different Saint, Saint of the Day books, and they're looking and saying, okay, whose day is it today so that we can add them in? Uh, and we had to limit it. We had to say, okay, you can, you can invoke five saints on the first go around, right? Because we go in age order. And by the time that you get to the, the littles, uh, all the saints had been taken that they knew. So we've said, okay, you can't, you can't invoke the name of a saint that is dear to someone else that they're going to say in their first go around. Right. You, and then you can only do five, the first go round, And then after everyone has invoked down to the, the, um, the three-year-old, uh, then now it's a free for all. Now you can add whomever you want, whoever's feast day it is. And uh, it's great because they think they're putting off sleep, <laughs> but really what they're doing is they are coming to know and learn about new saints and asking for their intercessions. And, I, and maybe, maybe I'm uh, being played here, but, uh, but the whole idea that they are learning to know and love the saints and to ask for their intercession, which is going to be efficacious, whether they are doing it to put off sleeper or not, right? The saints are still going to be praying for them. And man, what a, what a profound thing that will be. So that's one of the, the practices we do that, that we love. The other thing that we do is we celebrate particular feast days, uh, feasts of saints who, who our children are named after, uh, children's baptismal days, but then just also saints that are very important to our household, uh, saints that, that their charism is one that we align with. Uh, and so we take the time to celebrate the feast of St. Francis and St. Benedict and St. Dominic and, uh, and of St. Bridget and all these other saints. And we have a new one to add coming up real soon, St. John Henry Cardinal Newman. We're going to explore his life and what he teaches us, what we can gain from his, his sanctity. We're talking today with Dr. Bud Marr, who's the director of the National Institute for Newman Studies. It's going to be a great conversation. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle is at outside the walls. Come be a part of that discussion. Tell me about your favorite saint, there's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL, and today we're anticipating the canonization of 
John Henry Cardinal Newman. We're talking today with Dr. Bud Marr, who is the director of the National Institute for Newman Studies. I imagine is very busy as the canonization here approaches. Uh, Bud, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. It's really a pleasure. Of course, uh, all of you can listen to him as well on his show that he co-hosts with Bo Bonner, one of our many time guests. Uh, the Uncommon Good, its uh, home station is out of uh, Iowa Catholic Radio, but it also airs on the St. Michael Catholic Radio in Tulsa. Uh, and you can, of course, find it online as well. Uh, and so here, as we approach the canonization of of John Henry Newman, I, I want to know a little bit more about him. He has such a fascinating story of being an Anglican clergyman, uh, entering into the church, uh, as many people do, because he set out to prove it wrong, and then ending up not just as a uh, a really active uh, participant in the church, but as a clergyman himself, as a cardinal, and now on his way to being very soon, next month, a canonized saint. So take us just really quickly from the thousand-foot view, uh, give us an overview of his life. Sure. So Newman was born in 1801, and he grew up in a standard Anglican home. He said that his religion as a youth was uh, the religion of the Bible, meaning that his family would read scripture together almost daily. And so Newman early on imbibed a lot of scripture. Uh, and then at age 15, he had an evangelical conversion. So his faith became to him more personal and took on that sort of evangelical mode of how you practice the faith. In the 1830s, Newman became the leader of what's called the Oxford Movement or Tractarianism. And it was in a nutshell, basically an attempt to restore some Catholic elements to the Church of England. But over time, like you were pointing out, uh, he started to sense some shortcomings in, uh, in what he saw in the Church of England. And for him, a big turning point was a phrase that Augustine used where Augustine said, in effect, that uh, as the Catholic Church makes judgments, it does so globally. So he, he said the world stands secure in its judgment. And when Newman looked at the Church of England, he started to see it as something that was uh, more parochial in the sense that he could no longer buy the claim that the Church of England was a branch of the Catholic Church in England. Mm -hmm. He said he looked in the mirror and he saw the face of a monophysite, which was an ancient heresy. And so Newman started to wonder about his own status in the church. And it was really by exploring church history and wrestling with these questions that he began to write uh, an essay on the development of Christian doctrine. And it's, it's funny because Newman's writing that book in 1845, and he actually leaves it unfinished because when he gets to a certain chapter in the book, he feels compelled by conscience to enter the Catholic Church. And so um, there was a passionist priest, Father Dominic Barberi, who visits Newman, hears his confession. And for me, I'll say as a convert as well, I've always taken some solace in the fact that Newman started his confession in the evening with, with Father Barberi and then had to continue it the next morning. <laughs> it, was, it was a process. Yeah. So Newman came into the church on October 9th, 1845. He's one of the rare saints where his feast day is going to be the day of his conversion and not the day of his death. Hmm. You know, as I, you mentioned, his conversion started in large part with Augustine. And it's one of the reasons that I'm so adamant, and we talk, do this on the show each week, that we explore the writings of the doctors and the fathers of the church, because they give us so, you know, the, the, you can't relegate them to, oh, well, these were those guys a long time ago. 
Uh, these were those ladies a long time ago, and they don't really have, they lived in a different culture. They don't really have bearing on us today uh, because we see uh, how just incredibly profound uh, those writings can be to us today because, as, uh, as the phrase goes, the church is ever ancient and ever new. And those, those people so long ago, they have direct import to our life today uh, in the same way that now uh, John Henry Newman continues to be a, a link in that chain that anchors us back to the foundations of our faith. And one of the things that I um, uh, most benefit from, from John Henry Newman, is uh, his work with the Catina, which is uh, that document of the of St. Thomas Aquinas that gathered all of the uh, the church fathers and doctors together as a commentary on the Gospels. And, of course, that was completely, written by the doctors and fathers, compiled by St. Thomas Aquinas, and then now given to us in the English-speaking world through translation uh, by none other than soon-to-be Saint John Henry Newman. Yeah, Newman, he said that it was actually the fathers of the church that made him Catholic. And it was really through this personal dynamic encounter with the writings from the first centuries of the church that Newman came to the conviction, he said, if I look for a body that fits what I see um, in those first Christian communities, uh, it's the Catholic Church. Now, he had a very nuanced way of explaining that because Newman, of course, talked about the development of doctrine. So he recognized that there are ways that we think as Catholics today about purgatory or penance or the papacy that required this deeper reflection by the church over time. But he, he began to see the church as a living body that grew organically and this kind of continuity or thread running throughout uh, church history with uh, up to the living church today. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at um, my own way of operating as a Protestant. I don't know what, what tradition you came from, but uh, oftentimes I would look for what is the, uh, the organization or the denomination that most closely holds to what, uh, what I view as Orthodox uh, or, or I, you know, I looked to recreate what happened in the early church, and my way of doing that in my mind was to examine it as it looked at that time and try to replicate uh, the externals of that. And so Newman, of course, is talking about really it's not so much the externals. It is uh, the, you know, it's not a picture that we're trying to recreate. It is a this living thing uh, that, you know, you've got the, you know, I think of the old tintype pictures from, uh, uh, from the yeah. Wild West, and you've got a picture of a family there. Well, we could try and go to the, you know, Silver Dollar City or whatever that is and dress up in those same things and get the tintype. Or we can say, hey, this family uh, continued and they had children and they, uh, they still bear the family name and now they're taking photos on, on, you know, a digital camera instead. And so here is the living family as opposed to this recreation that we want to somehow cobble together. Yeah, I don't know if I'm getting the term right, but there's this phrase that you hear today, LARPing, like role-playing. <laughs> and that's not not what Newman had in mind. Like you said, it's a, it's a visible body that passes through history. But Newman, uh, he articulates this in really interesting ways. You know, one image that he uses that has always stuck with me is he says the deposit of faith, so the truths that God has given to us from Christ to the apostles, there's something objective and and solid about that. But he said our reception of those truths takes place in history at a human level. It's not like God 
overcomes our humanity, but God comes to us in the fullness of our humanity. And so the image that Newman used was like um, someone sitting in a room at, at dawn. And as the light in the room increases, the objects in the room remain the same. Mm-hmm. And so the initial description that the person in the room made of the furniture there and whatnot, it's not that that was inaccurate or wrong, but that his understanding of what's there increases over time. So there might be more specificity or he describes things in a slightly different way. And so the church has increased its understanding, but Newman was firm in his conviction that the church would never you know, say something that would contradict that deposit that had been first, first passed on by Christ. You know, Peter Kreeft in his book, Catholic Christianity, summarizes that thought by saying uh, that the church can never change sacred tradition because she's not its author. Its author is Christ, and she can interpret it and draw out its inner meanings, but she can never uh, correct it. Uh, she can add to it, but never subtract from it. And when she adds, she adds organically like a tree adds fruit, not mechanically like a construction crew adds another story to a house. So there's this this like carving out of the river that might uh, alter a little bit of the trajectory, but doesn't ever, the, the river never reverses course. Yeah. And that image of a river that you're using, that's very Newman-esque. I don't know if you intended that, but he says, in some cases, we, we tend to think of a spring being purest or clearest at its source. But when it comes to the development of doctrine, he said it's more like a, a raging river that picks up um, momentum and, and steam over time. And so that's where uh, we get the phrase, uh, to live is to change and to be perfect is to have changed often. Uh, Newman said uh, the development of doctrine over time is more like a raging river that has this kind of vitality further along in its course. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's this sense that um, as we look at the doctrine of the church, it, yeah. it, it is a it is a living thing. It's not, uh, you know, the, the doctrine isn't, as the deposit of faith, held up in some lockbox that's uh, removed yeah. from us, kind of like uh, stocks and bonds, which, you know, we, we lock them away in a safety deposit box and they don't really have any... Um, immediate impact on our lives. We kind of store them away in safety for another day. And the the deposit of faith is quite the opposite. It has daily interactions with us because we live in an incarnational faith that God, God became man, that God gave us this incarnational church to continue to affect us uh, because the situations of our day and time are different than those that they faced in the first century. And the faith has to be able to address those things. Uh, you talked about the, you know, the the idea of role playing or LARPing. Um, yeah. You today, uh, we have things that we have to to figure out that they didn't have in the medieval times. Uh, we didn't have to look at uh, medical ethics in the same way that we do today. Yeah. So the church has to be living and active to be able to speak to our current realities. Well, you mentioned your own background, and I come from an evangelical Protestant background, and I'm. I'm not going out of my way to pick on another communion, but uh, when I was when I was discerning about coming into the Catholic Church, I thought seriously about Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason I think I landed Roman Catholic was precisely what you're saying about the need for a living magisterium, a, a living voice that can address new concerns. And you know, the Church has never required a certain kind of society to give witness to the gospel. The Church has uh, it, it's, it's survived within communist societies. It's 
stared down emperors. You know, democracy comes with its own uh, pitfalls and challenges that the church has to face. And then, like you're saying, TL, the uh, new developments in bioethics, I think even marriage and family life with yeah. the development of new technologies and things, we're always facing new questions. But for me, it was very freeing to come to a place where um, you, you threw out the phrase earlier, uh, doctors of the church. And some have speculated that when Newman is declared a saint, he might also be declared the doctor of conscience. Hmm. Uh, and in writing about these matters, Newman said, uh, he, he called conscience the, origin, the aboriginal vicar of Christ because he believed it to be the first experience for us uh, in hearing God's voice. Um, but he said in our own day or in his day that there was a false understanding of conscience, the right of self-will. And in our own time, that's almost increased in popularity. And so uh, it's not as Catholics that we leave our brain out th at the door. But having the voice of the church guiding us in all these complex matters, uh, there is something really um, comforting and prophetic about that. We're talking today with Dr. Bud Marr, the director of the National Institute for Newman Studies, as we approach the canonization of John Henry Cardinal Newman. When we come back, we're going to talk some about the, the contributions of Cardinal Newman, both to the church at his time and to the church today. Join us over on social media and be a part of that conversation. Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. I'd love to have you there. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL, and today we're anticipating the canonization of John Henry Cardinal Newman. We're talking with Bud Marr, the director of the National Institute for Newman Studies. Uh, he's the associate editor of the Newman Studies Journal and the author of the book, To Be Perfect is to Have Changed Often, which we just heard a little bit about where that came from. Uh, Bud, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for having me, TL. So you you use this phrase, and I want to go back to it because uh, yeah. it's fascinating to me that the conscience Newman would say is the Aboriginal vicar of Christ. There's a lot of misunderstanding uh, about conscience and what it is, and uh, we talk about the primacy of conscience. So talk a little bit about Newman's view of conscience and how that informed his move into Catholicism. Well, it's interesting because historically Catholic theologians had developed different arguments or proofs for God's existence, and Newman did not toss those aside. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas had his five ways, and Newman thought there were, was a place for those arguments. But one of his favorite arguments, if you want to use that term for God, was what he called the argument for conscience. And he pointed to the universal experience of conscience. You know, only so sociopaths don't seem to recognize uh, the reality of conscience in their lives. But the rest of us all have this sense where when we do good, we feel at peace, and when we do wrong, we feel shame. And Newman said there's this double aspect to conscience. It's not only that we seem to recognize some law that we violated, but he said the experience of shame is a very personal experience. And so when we do something wrong, it's not simply that we violated a law, but that we've offended a lawgiver. So Newman thought that insofar as a person listened to their conscience, 
they would become ever more open to the reality of God in their lives. And I think that's why he spoke of conscience as the Aboriginal vicar of Christ, because in a sense, it's the it's our first kind of awakening to the voice of God in our lives. Now, Newman contrasted that with what he called a counterfeit understanding of conscience. And he summarized that counterfeit understanding as the right of self-will, where we interpret conscience not as something that's formed by divine and natural law, but as our own sort of subjective ability to determine the course of our lives without any sort of boundaries around us. My conscience is what makes me happy or, yeah. uh, you know, I don't, I don't like to do this thing. And so I'm going to say, well, you know, in, in good conscience, I can't do it. And it's more because of my own desires than it is because of anything external to me. Yeah. So eventually that path, that way of life will lead into some very detrimental consequences. But for Newman, conscience was at the heart of the moral life. And then this branched out into even his understanding of the church. So at the time, there were some ecclesiastical leaders who had a sense that the role of the faithful was to pray, pay, and obey. (laughs) Like the mass body of believers were sort of passive recipients of the truth that was passed down from the hierarchy. Newman never denigrated the hierarchy. He, of course, said the official magisterium has the final say in matters of doctrine. But he called the sense of the faithful, the census fidei, as one witness to the tradition. So he thought, uh, as the church reflected on doctrine, and as the church made judgments on these matters, that it should actually consult the faithful. And he pointed to, for example, uh, Pius IX, when Pius IX defined the doctrine, or the dogma, I should say, of the Immaculate Conception, he first sent out a circular letter to all the bishops and priests of the world, and he said, tell me what the sense of the faith was, what the devotion is to Our Lady specifically on this matter. And so the witness or testimony there became one of the evidences in support of defining the doctrine. Now, I'd like to explore this a little bit because there, with both with conscience and with the sense of the faithful, there are mm-hmm. uh, some, some miscommunic- misunderstandings that I think that Newman would push back against. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of this goes back to something you said very early on, that what drew Newman in was the very uh, the scope of the Catholic Church, that it was a universal church. And so often when we think about conscience or we think about the sense of the faithful, we tend to try and limit those to, to uh, localities, right? Yeah. So uh, we want the sense of the faithful to override something in our own diocese or in our own nation, uh, because look at what we all believe here. And yet that would, I think Newman would push against that saying, well, this is a, a global faith. Uh, and so let's talk a little bit about what it means uh, to have the sense of the faithful and and maybe explore that idea as it uh, as is expressed by some that somehow the sense of the faithful undoes or uh, mm-hmm. overcomes uh, some teaching of the church. Well, there's this, I think, false understanding of the sense of the faithful that it's somehow a democratic principle mm-hmm. in the life of the church, such that the decisions of the Pope or the decisions of a council need uh, the affirmation of the faithful to be ratified or that the faithful could somehow veto the decisions of the magisterium. I don't think that's what Newman had in mind. And at different points in his letters, he really pressed the fact that when you're thinking about the sense of the faithful, uh, the ongoing life of believers, their participation in the sacraments, 
their prayerfulness, all of those things will contribute to a deeper understanding of the truths of the faith. Mm -hmm. And so in our own time, I guess the way that you could think about this is when we have a disputed question or when there's some level of controversy, it's not that the church takes um, a vote and majority opinion rules. Newman clearly thought of the bishops as successors to the apostles, but he did have this dynamic sense that, um, that, that the, the bishops should turn to the faithful, that they should consult their devotion. And for me, what that does is it highlights the responsibility that we have to know the faith well, mm-hmm. to live it out devotionally, to witness to the truth of the gospel in public life. So it sort of, it sort of puts an onus on the faithful. So let's go back. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned was he, he brought up this idea of the census fide, uh, fide rather from uh, the announcement of the new, the doctrine on, on Mary. Well, yeah. so this was a, a belief that was really kind of largely practiced around already. Uh, this yeah. was not something necessarily new. It was just a question of whether it was uh, universal enough to be considered a dogma. Uh, and so I, I, I'm getting the impression that for Newman, uh, the census fide would have been subordinate to the development of Christian doctrine, to this idea that doctrine can change, but only moving forward. It can't reverse itself. That's right. And Newman would appeal to historical instances to think about this. So one of his favorite examples was the Arian controversy, Mm -hmm. where there were priests, uh, specifically the priest Arius, and some of his followers who said Christ was the first and greatest creature, but not divine. And Newman pointed back to that stage in church history and said, it was precisely the sense of the faithful that stood up and defended Nicene doctrine and, and held tightly to the affirmation that Christ was fully human and fully divine. Um, and so that for him, that was, that was one powerful example of the sense of the faithful working, working well. But whenever we think about these matters, it's important to remember that both faithful and bishops and pope were all accountable to revelation. Right. And so revelation always has priority. Uh, and like you're saying, for Newman, like the development of doctrine could never reverse course. And there, the church is bound by what God has given, especially in his written words, such that it could never you know, contradict what that revelation had shown. Oh, I know we used to say this, but now, and of course, yeah. that, that's a, from my own former tradition, uh, they would have and still do uh, these conferences each year and then each every every four years where there are measures that are brought up. And there is this democratic system, this representative democratic system uh, where doctrine gets put up for vote. That's one of the reasons that really drew me into the Catholic Church was this, um, that even as things developed, they didn't reverse course. And, and so uh, I, I look at this idea of the sense of the faithful and really see it as a challenge to us uh, yeah. to be well-formed, uh, to be practicing the faith and not just say, well, I go to Mass, so I ought to have a say. Well, if you look at something like the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, that Our Lady was conceived without the stain of original sin, Newman had, he was exchanging letters with Protestants who were saying, this language is, it doesn't show up in the earliest Christian writings. And the point that Newman sets forth is he says, Certainly, 
St. Peter, if he were to talk about Our Lady, wouldn't use the precise terms that Pius IX did in the definition. But if it was explained to him what each of those terms meant, he would certainly affirm it. So you, you see there the interrelationship between we, we're not contradicting anything in the original revelation, even though we may use terminology or use like employ ideas that give people a fuller or deeper understanding of what those original truths were about. So now let's move away from who Newman was yeah. and talk about as this canonization approaches, what does Newman have to offer us today? Well, as you've mentioned, I work at the National Institute for Newman Studies in Pittsburgh. And it's, you know, it's kind of worth asking, like, why has something like that cropped up in the United States and not necessarily in England? I think, uh, uh, you know, New Newman has been the patron here in the United States of campus ministries. He was deeply concerned about education. And for that reason, as campus Catholic campus ministries started to crop up on uh, public college campuses, Newman was named the patron. And I think that's really proper and, and fitting because I know for myself and many Catholics who either con converted or uh, sort of claimed the faith for themselves during their college years, it was through uh, the prayers of Newman and in many cases, the writings of Newman that that took place. And so for myself, and I've talked to others with a devotion to Newman, uh, we, we feel like this upcoming canonization is really just an official affirmation by the church of reality that we've known for a long time, that Newman is interceding on our behalf and has had this real concrete, like visible impact on the practice of the Catholic faith here in the United States. Well, I would say uh, specifically because of its presence in the academic uh, higher education realm with the Newman centers all over, uh, I, I know so many people who have come into the faith because of their experience of Catholicism uh, at their universities, that something about being in that learning mode and having their questions really answered, uh, the difficult questions answered, uh, that, that said, you know what, maybe this is where I want to go. Yeah, studies have shown that it's really that formative stage in late adolescence into the college years that if someone embraces the faith at that stage, they're very likely to practice faith for the rest of their life. But if we lose young people, I mean, it can be very detrimental or, you know, difficult to reverse course. But I think Newman is a great patron because he never shied away from the difficult conversations. And so in his own time, he's kind of like St. Thomas. He's interacting with the philosophical and scientific currents of his time, and he's not he, he's he's not you know retreating or shut, shoving his head in the sand, but really mm -hmm. trying to um, address the the real concerns that young people have. Mm -hmm. We've been talking today with Dr. Bud Marr. He's the director of the National Institute for Newman Studies. Find them and their work over at newmanstudies.org. When we come back, we're going to have our reading from scripture and from church history. We're going to go and read a little bit of one of John Henry Cardinal Newman's sermons on why holiness is necessary for heaven. It's an interesting perspective that might help you in your conversations. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handle's at outside the walls and don't go anywhere. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to outside the walls.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. Get a fantastic conversation today as we are anticipating the canonization of John Henry Cardinal Newman uh, coming up in early October. And uh, we talked with Dr. Bud Marr, who is the director of the National Institute for Newman Studies, and he gave us a broad brushstrokes view of the life and the work of Cardinal Newman. If you missed any part of the episode or you want to share it with your friends, all of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. But that's not all you'll find there because supporters of the show get an extra segment. After the interview's over, we keep the uh, the tape rolling and we ask a couple of extra piercing questions that we then provide as a, a gesture of gratitude for all those who keep us on the air. If you want to see what that's about, while you're there at OutsideTheWalls.com, up in the top right-hand corner of the page, you'll see a link that says support the show hyphen Patreon. If you click that link, it'll take you, and some of those extra segments are available to the public. You can go back through the backlog and see what's available, get a taste for what it looks like to support the show, and then for as little as $5 a month, one good cup of coffee a month, and you get uh, weekly extra segments that are anywhere between uh, 8 to 15 minutes. So I invite you to come over and take a look at that. Join the numbers of those who support us and get that extra juicy content on top of it all. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to Scripture and our reading from church history, which, of course, uh, we're not going to go terribly far back because we're going to read from Cardinal Newman himself. Our reading from Scripture comes from tomorrow's uh, epistle. It's from the book of 1 Timothy, and Paul says, But you, man of God, pursue righteousness, devotion, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Compete well for the faith. Lay hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made the noble confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you before God, who gives life to all things, and before Jesus Christ, who gave testimony under Pontius Pilate for the noble confession, to keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the blessed and only ruler will make manifest at the proper time the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, and whom no human has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. That reading comes from the book of 1 Timothy, and it ties in to a question that Newman is going to ask in uh, in the homily that we're going to read from today. Now, The homily is quite a bit more robust than this. We had to cut it down in order to fit into this segment. Uh, But I want to encourage you to go to our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. And I'm going to put a link to this whole sermon called Holiness Necessary for Future Blessedness. Uh, It's a homily by Cardinal Newman, and it's available on the Newman Reader, which is a service of the, uh, the National Institute for Newman Studies. So we're going to put that link there. I want you to go and read the whole thing. But the question comes up, why is it that we have to be holy to get heaven? Why is it that Paul is telling Timothy that it's so important that he contend for the faith and hold fast to that noble confession? Well, let's hear what Cardinal Newman has to say to us in that regard. Why is it that holiness is a necessary qualification for our being received 
into heaven. Why is it that the Bible enjoins upon us so strictly to love, fear, and obey God, to be just, honest, meek, pure in heart, forgiving, heavenly-minded, self-denying, humble, and resigned? Man is confessedly weak and corrupt. Why, then, is he enjoined to be so religious, so unearthly? Why is he required, in the strong language of Scripture, to become a new creature, since he is by nature what he is? Would it not be an act of greater mercy in God to save him altogether without this holiness, which it is so difficult, yet as it appears, so necessary for him to possess? We are apt to deceive ourselves and to consider heaven a place like this earth. I mean a place where everyone may choose and take his own pleasure. We see that in this world, active men have their own enjoyments, and domestic men have theirs, and men of literature and of science and of political talent have their respective pursuits and pleasures. Hence, we are led to act as if it will be the same in another world. The only difference we put between this world and the next is that here, as we know well, men are not always sure but there, we suppose, they will be always sure of obtaining what they seek after. And accordingly, we conclude that any man, whatever his habits, tastes, or manner of life, if once admitted into heaven, would be happy there. Not that we altogether deny that some preparation is necessary for the next world, but we do not estimate its real extent and importance. We think we can reconcile ourselves to God when we will, as if nothing were required in the case of men in general, but some temporary attention, more than ordinary to our religious duties, some strictness during our last sickness in the service of the church, as men of business arrange their letters and papers on taking a journey or balancing an account. But an opinion like this, though commonly acted on, is refuted as soon as put into words. For heaven, it is plain from Scripture, is not a place where many different and discordant pursuits can be carried on at once, as is the case in this world. Here, every man can do his own pleasure, but there, he must do God's pleasure. It would be presumption to attempt to determine the employments of that eternal life which good men are to pass in God's presence, or to deny that that state which eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor mind conceived, may comprise an infinite variety of pursuits and occupants. Still, so far we are distinctly told that future life will be spent in God's presence, in a sense which does not apply to our present life, so that it may be best described as an endless and uninterrupted worship of the eternal Father, Son, and Spirit. They serve him all day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. The lamb is in the midst of the throne and shall feed them and lead them unto living fountains of waters. Again, Scripture says, The city hath no need of a sun, neither of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. These passages from St. John are sufficient to remind us of many others. We see then that holiness or inward separation from the world 
is necessary to our admission into heaven because heaven is not heaven. It is not a place of happiness except to the holy. There are bodily indispositions which affect the taste so that the sweetest flavors become ungrateful to the palate and indispositions which impair the sight, tinging the fair face of nature with some sickly hue. In like manner, there is a moral malady which disorders the inward sight and taste, and no man laboring under it is in a condition to enjoy what Scripture calls the fullness of joy in God's presence and pleasures at his right hand forevermore. I will venture to say more than this. It is fearful, but it is right to say it that if we wish to imagine a punishment for an unholy reprobate soul, we perhaps could not fancy a greater one than to summon it to heaven. Heaven would be hell to an irreligious man. We know how unhappy we are apt to feel at present when alone and in the midst of strangers or of men of different tastes and habits from ourselves. How miserable, for an example, would it be to have to live in a foreign land among people whose faces we never saw before and whose language we could not learn. And this is but a faint illustration of the loneliness of a man of earthly dispositions and tastes thrust into the society of saints and angels. How forlorn would he wander through the courts of heaven? He would find no one like himself. He would see in every direction the marks of God's holiness, and these would make him shudder. He would feel himself always in his presence. He could no longer turn his thoughts another way as he does now when conscience reproaches him. He would know that the eternal eye was ever upon him and that eye of holiness, which is joy and life to holy creatures, would seem to him an eye of wrath and punishment. God cannot change his nature. Holy he must ever be. But while he is holy, no unholy soul can ever be happy in heaven. Fire does not inflame iron, but it inflames straw. It would cease to be fire if it did not. And so heaven itself would be fire to those who would fain escape across the great gulf from the torments of hell. But while we thus labor to mold our hearts after the pattern of holiness of our Heavenly Father, it is our comfort to know that what I have already implied, that we are not left to ourselves but the Holy Ghost is graciously present with us and enables us to triumph over and to change our own minds. It is a comfort and an encouragement, while an anxious and awful thing to know that God works in and through us. Narrow indeed is the way of life, but infinite is his love and power who is with the church in Christ's place to guide us along it. That reading comes from a sermon by John Henry Cardinal Newman, it's the first sermon out of his parochial and plain sermons. I've got a link to it over on our social media. It takes you straight to the Newman Reader, newmanreader.org. See if you can set a time to celebrate around October 12th or 13th. The 13th is the canonization day. It's a big day for the church as we add another saint to the church calendar. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls and be a part of the ongoing conversation. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.